This is Deep Space Dive, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. DS9 is the Star Trek with the greatest focus on political concepts like colonialism, feminism, queerness, and post-scarcity economics. Join hosts and guests who aren't just Trekkies, but activists, academics, artists, therapists, and more as we do a deep dive into the text and subtext where few Star Trek podcasts have gone before. In each episode, we'll be discussing a different theme or character. Um, We are not doing recaps. There are many great podcasts that do that. Um, Also, because this podcast is theme-based, it is a completely full of spoilers experience. If you are watching the show for the first time and care about not being spoiled, um, we recommend that you hold off until you've seen the whole show and then go back through the archives. If you've seen the whole thing or if you just don't care about what happens in season seven, then you're good to go. And as for us, I'm Ilana Levin, also the host of Graphic Policy Radio. I've worked at the intersection of comics, nerd culture, and social change for a a really long time. Um, And my biggest Star Trek cred is I gave a speech on fan activism at a rally organized by Lita, a.k.a. Chase Masterson, who is a lovely, lovely individual. And I'm Sarah Daniel Rasher. When I'm not getting paid to use math to save the world, I write about film and figure skating. I was the founding captain of my high school Star Trek club, and I once got Nicole DeBoer to kiss me at at a convention, and I believe today's guest was with me at the time as a witness. (laughs) (laughs) Episode three, the Bashir episode. So, Dr. Julian Bashir is one of Deep Space Nine's signature characters. He's a polarizing character for a lot of fans, with some building self-identification headcanons around him and others complaining that he's the show's annoying weak link. And to others, it's like, finally, some twink representation. Maybe that's because he's a character full of contradictions. A hyper-competent physician with awkward social skills, a seemingly naive wannabe spy with a family secret he manages to hide from everyone for years, and a horny girl chaser whose most memorable romance was with a male lizard twice his age. He's also a still-rare series regular of Middle Eastern North African descent, and a voice of science and reason that harkens back to Star Trek's core values. A lot of conversation about Bashir centers around his romantic relationships. So today we want to focus on what the character himself represents. Joining us is Ali Nagib. Ali has been working as an activist and organizer in several policy areas for over a decade, most prominently as assistant director of Illinois Chapter of Normal, the national organization for the reform of marijuana laws, working on drug policy reform. This includes helping to pass key cannabis policy laws in Illinois, beginning with the medical cannabis legislation in 2013, up through helping to end prohibition in the state in 2019. Ali holds a bachelor's degree in economics and an MBA from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and has been a lifelong Illinois resident. He lives in Chicago with his wife and two children. And he's also the guy who took me to my senior prom. So um, with that in mind, Ali, why don't you let us know a little bit about your background with Star Trek and especially with Deep Space Nine? Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, So I started watching uh, Star Trek in high school and I caught Next Generation right at the end, right as it was ending, maybe even just after it ended, but it was in regular nightly syndication. So I caught up on all of those pretty quickly and was a big fan. And 
got into Deep Space Nine uh, a little bit, like a couple years later, towards the end of high school when it was in its later seasons. So I, I, in a way, I kind of watched it backwards because I didn't watch the earlier seasons or all the earlier seasons, certainly, until much later. Um, but the last three or four seasons, I saw pretty much all of them, you know, when they aired. Um, and then, you know, I've watched most of the other series, not all of them. Um, but, uh, yeah, so definitely by the time I started watching G Space Nine, uh, and it was especially in that time when it was becoming much more serialized, all the long running plots. And that was, you know, really a, a new thing at that time for TV in a lot of ways. Um, that really, I think stuck with me. Uh, in a way where, you know, you, I still like Next Generation and it still had its benefits, but, uh, you know, G Space Nine really had that much more. Uh, and then going back later and catching up on all the earlier seasons and, you know, once they, you know, they were released uh, a little bit after that. Uh, so I was able to catch up on all those. Uh, but yeah, that's that's sort of been my D Space Nine experience. Uh, as, far as, as far as Star Trek cred goes, I would have to say... Um, probably, probably the fact I'm, I'm slightly prouder of the time that I inadvertently got Rene Aubergenois to sing some parts of Les Poissons. Uh, and I'm prouder of that than the time I inadvertently got Michael Moore to sing Jesus Christ Superstar in front of several hundred people. Both cases were in front of, you know, group crowds of several hundred people. So the, because I don't know, there's just, there's just something, you know, I, I really wasn't like, trying to get him to sing, but, but just, he happily went right into it. And so that was such a joy. Um, so that's, that's probably the basics of my, uh, my, my Star Trek, uh, and especially with Deep Space Nine. I'm just envious of the fact that you shared a room with Rene Aubergenois, which I never managed to do. Um, so, uh, let's jump into it. Um, where we'd love to talk with you about your activism as well. And we'll kind of bring that in with one of the topics we have planned. But I wanted to start, since you've talked about sort of your personal relationship with the show, talking a little bit about Bashir's background and its similarity to your own background. Um, Because Alexander Siddig, the actor who played Bashir um, and still occasionally plays him on YouTube, um, is of Sudanese and British descent. And um, that's something we really didn't often see on TV in the 90s and still don't see often today. Um, we were wondering, Ali, if you could talk a little bit about um, that representation and how that resonated with you for seeing it as a teenager and also seeing it now and as somebody with kids. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a big deal. I mean, and I, I think it's really interesting how... Uh, you know, in a way that, you know, they made him sort of generically North, you know, North African, Middle Eastern. And when they cast his father, they brought in Brian George, who's an actor of a very similar background where he's, you know, sort of British and Canadian, but he comes from a a very mixed uh, uh, Middle Eastern and and South Asian background. Uh, You know, they, they, they really didn't play into it at all. And I know Sadig has talked about this, you know, they didn't really make a point of it or, or ever, you know, reference it directly. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it. It's funny in a, in a way it almost mirrors, um, mirrors Picard, the character where, you know, despite the fact that he's supposed to be French, like his most sort of defining trait is being British. And I feel like <laughs> Bashir is kind of, Bashir is kind of the same way. They, and and, and I think so the writer true. has talked about it too, you know, when it, when it, and the, both the way that he plays with, with O'Brien and the, the two, you know, sort of 
characters of in in the UK there sort of playing each other sort of uh, but they they put that sort of on the top in a way where all the things related to his ethnic background are sort of just genericized and some of that's just Star Trek being able to say well it's the future and so everybody's you know mixed and has different backgrounds and whatever and sometimes they're alien and sometimes they're not um, but yeah just the fact that that was so obvious definitely was uh, a very meaningful thing and that there weren't a lot of characters like that um yeah i i I, it's funny also because for me like i think the first thing i knew about him was that he was related to malcolm mcdowell and i i I was obsessed with the clockwork orange as a teenager um and i remember sort of seeing it and being like he does look like him i don't know if anybody else was like (laughs) coming into Deep Space Nine from being a very pretentious Stanley Kubrick teenager, but. Yes, I think I knew about that because you told me that. Um, Otherwise, I wouldn't have known, but he does. Um, But yeah, it's, um, it's interesting and very typical of Star Trek that like his background is sort of visible on screen, but it's never really um, explored beyond just his physicality. Um, sort of what do we think about that decision? Is that a missed opportunity or is that something that's just to the benefit of the show? I think they do it sometimes, not, not to any extreme, but there's, you know, you know, O'Brien is clearly Irish and he's not just like happens to be Irish, but you know, there's references to it and things. And Keiko is, you know, clearly of, of, of Japanese heritage. And that's, that's also clearly referred to in various ways throughout both next gen and, and deep space nine. Um, but yeah, there is a more, most of the time they do tend to, uh, stay away from those sort of explicit characterizations when they can. Um, which I think is, I think is good to a large degree. I think it, it does allow them to sort of make the point about, you know, it was, it was also weird because, um, you know, I was, I was doing a little reading and thinking about the character of, of how, uh, you know, part of the reason the character exists is simply because the first show had a doctor and all the other shows have doctors. You know, if you're on, uh, if you're a main franchise Star Trek show, like there's a doctor and their doctor is a main character. It's not just a recurring character or a guest character. And so they have to fill that role. And, you know, it's not always going to be a hologram or an alien. Sometimes it's just going to be some, some guy that you're going to kind of write later and figure out later, you know, in a way that, you know, some of the other series, it was other, it was other characters, but they sort of plugged that hole in a, in a weird way on this show because they had to have a doctor. And so he was sort of, he was the blankest slate to begin with, um, both, you know, sort of from and trying to present him from that, you know, of his background being ambiguous, but also, um, just from a character standpoint. You know, Deep Space Nine was my first Star Trek. And so it wasn't until this, this recent rewatch that what hit, what hit me was that Bashir isn't just the doctor he's the anti-bones because if the whole thing with bones from the original series and the movies is like damn it jim i'm a doctor not a space cowboy like Bashir's whole thing is he's a doctor but what he really wants to be is a spy he's a doctor but what he really wants to go is go on this away mission and get shot at he like is so full of enthusiasm and interest in doing other things other than just being a doctor that I, I feels to me like they were almost going for like, what is the opposite of bones? Let's try that. And they do like, even in a way that like they didn't touch with like crusher, like 
there are several instances where he says, I'm a doctor, not a something or other. And it's done with just sort of a wink and a giggle. Um, so I think they're very aware of how his characterization is breaking from the way doctors had been on the show previously. Um, and one of those ways is that he's more of a scientist um, and fits into that idea of like the engineers on Star Trek were always like people kind of doing science in space or you had like Spock who was a science officer whereas Bones and Dr. Crusher on TNG never really seemed to be like doing scientific research the way mm. that Bashir often is. That's true. But I think for me, like what made him stick out and be likable to me was just he was like so enthusiastic. And I, I hadn't realized that that was counter to type for the Trek doctors, but that appeals to me a lot. Yeah, and... um often enthusiastic in a way that like plays into idealism and even kind of moves into activism where it, which is where we're going to get somewhat into what what Ali has done within the state of Illinois um advocating for change that actually happened um but that he has this sort of idealism that becomes more and more targeted towards widespread structural change like we're going to fix the Jem'Hadar kinds of things. Yeah, I do think Bashir, I mean, the other thing is, he, you know, he was one of the younger characters and also, you know, the other younger characters as they were written were either, you know, super grizzled like Kira or super aloof and ancient like Dax. And so most of the others were older or, you know, he was the young, he was the young one on the show and, and excluding the kids, you know, excluding, uh, uh Jake and, and, Nog. but, uh, so that's why a lot of it, it, again, I think just felt to his character to be written to be the, you know, there's each, every show had, every Star Trek show had one character of that type that, you know, the young, eager, uh, whatever, go-getter type. And in this one, it just kind of fell to the doctor because they wrote all the other characters to be other ways. Yeah, I mean, Terry Farrell is younger, but Dax is, you know, the joke is that it's the young pretty woman who's 300 years old. But, and a man. Um, yeah, right. But her I, her character was yeah. Her character was always written as being very you know old and experienced and not you know gr not green, not coming in with this wide eyed optimism and and exuberance. I mean that would even as her character evolved and got sort of more exuberant and more expressive, she wasn't ever that you know she was still coming from this place of I'm three hundred years old. But you mentioned that you know the importance of uh, when we have the interactions between Bashir and his parents and. I'm someone who gets really critical when people tend to act like, oh, any old thing, so long as they're not white, is just, it's all the same. And I was so enthusiastic to hear, like, that he that he had been part of making sure that the people who played his parents were of, you know, North African and Middle Eastern descent. Um, like, I think his mom isn't even, wasn't even an actress. She's an academic who... I'm not exactly sure of the story behind that. I feel maybe Sarah, did you tell me she, about that? or she did? I I read that she did commute. She was like a community theater person, and she was at USC, so she clearly would have been around the sort of folks that would you know <laughs> would know of that sort of thing. If you were digging deep for for non traditional screen actors, but folks in that area that that could do the job. Yeah, she mm. was. Yeah, she had some acting experience, but she wasn't a professional actress and. My understanding is that they were really having trouble finding 
a woman of the necessary age who was of uh, Middle Eastern or North African descent who they could schedule, who had kind of the right um, presence for the role. So they basically had to hire somebody who was not a professional actress. And I've seen fans who are younger, who are newer to the show, sort of complaining to that about that and saying, well, somebody must have been excluded. And what I've seen from sort of production retellings of that was no, it was at the time very, very difficult to find an actress that fit that brief and that um, that Sid, as well as production, felt very strongly that they needed to cast somebody who had who was authentically of a similar background to the character. Yeah, and that that was exciting to me as a quote unquote ethnic person who is white. So I can only imagine that that might have been very enthusiastic to someone who's like of you know similar descent to Bashir in the first place. Yeah, it's, it was definitely um, uh, a, a good thing to have that represented that way, and 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 meaningful to to know that they were were taking the, the care to do those sorts of things, uh, even in the late nineties. So, um, it, so a big part of um, like we were talking about Bashir not being. Um, super doctory, but it also seems to be a big part of his identity. Um, and thinking about, cause I just rewatched, um, Dr. P- Bashir, I presume, which is the episode with his parents where his parents t- try to take credit for him becoming a doctor. And he gets very visibly vexed about that, that it seems to be very ingrained in his identity, but that's very tied in with his desire to be, you know, sort of, at the beginning, he's sort of Peace Corps Bashir, but that <laughs> evolves into something a little more sophisticated um, as the show progresses. And do we think of Bashir as an activist character or as an advocate character in that way? I, I, I certainly think so, at least, you know, within the boundaries of, of Star Trek and, and the way that they portray those sorts of things. Uh, you know, he's not... Uh, He's not uh, starting a union exactly, although I know you mentioned that he uh, previously that he uh, was involved in that. But, uh, you know, more generally, just his sort of attitude and his, um, you know, you know, know, on on the both sides of it where he, he... is interested in the intrigue and the the dark side, the spy side, the 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 section thirty one side. But you know, at 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 his at his heart, it's like um, like Sadler says at the end of the 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 one in season seven, where he's like, you know, you're the guy who you know wants to play the game, but is only willing to go so far and is is willing to you know is going to do the right thing at the end. And so he's sort of like, in a way, trying to be that perfect balance of really committed and really strong, but also, and do, and, you know, doing what it takes to, to try to accomplish the goal, but also having, you know, uh, still, it's still adhering and caring about the principles that you're trying to defend and not just, uh, the ends justify the means. He has so much empathy for everyone, um, and so little sense of boundaries, which I think makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. 
Yeah. Um, and what really strikes me is that when he does um, make a major difference, especially in the war with the Dominion, it's always by using the tools he has where um, he early when they're still just sort of getting a sense of what the Dominion really is, um, he cures the blight that the the that the founders have sort of cursed this one planet with for defying the Dominion. Um and almost doesn't quite realize what a, what a major political act that generational cure that is a metaphor for HIV is. Um, and then tries and fails to find a way to um, um, either synthesize the Ketracel white that the Jemhandar are reliant on or to cure them of the addiction. And then, um, and then towards the end of the series, um, cures Odo of the disease that's killing the founders, thereby, you know, stopping the Federation genocide of the founders. So whenever he has a big impact on kind of the politics of the series, it's very tied in to his own medical skill set um, and very, and very based on what you said, Alana, like his level of compassion. And like, you know, I think that there's definitely a sense that in some Star Trek spaces or characters, they would have felt like it was overstepping and it's not. Um, and like, I appreciate the, um, the fact that, you know, there's moments where, uh, you know, people can check in and like, look, nobody else was able to do this in this amount of time. Maybe you won't be able to. And so people like to try to play it like it's a, an ego thing. But I think it's actually, it, while it doesn't occur to him that he might not be able to, like, it's not coming from a place of I'm so great. It's coming from a place of like, I really give a fuck and I don't want to see people suffering. Um and I think that he just like resents, and this ties into his, what had happened to him. I feel like he resents anybody acting like anything is just a given that we have to just suffer. Things just have to be a certain way. Uh, and any sort of, um, what's in the word I'm looking for? Not giving up, but like a... Like a fatalism? Any, thank you. Any, fa- like he just, com- he just rejects fatalism. He doesn't know how to, how to, how to, to do that. He, he sort of buys into that for the one cycle in, in statistical probabilities when he thinks that the math says that they're all going to lose. And then you know, he goes through the laundry list of even if all these unlikely things happen, which all end up happening, you know, foreshadowing all of those things happen. Um, oh, yeah. Then, That's a good point. Uh, you know, they, they but, you know, by the end of the episode, he's like, well, we'll see what happens. And I, and I think you also have the similar evolution where, you know, earlier in the series, he's definitely much more. Uh, uh, committed to the ideals, and then by you know by the end of season seven, both he and the writers are like, "Well, you know, fuck it, we're just gonna we're gonna do what it takes. We got to get this cure. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna wait on medicine and vaccines. I'm just gonna you know kidnap this dude and take the, take the answer and move on." Um, so, I think that uh, there was certainly a a a you know some of it again. I think it's just the natural writing of like we're getting to the end. We can do these things that we might not push the envelope as much if we still had a couple more seasons to go. But uh, I still think that was a a fairly natural evolution of the character, particularly given the context. Yeah. And I think it's a natural evolution in general that you start out as this sort of unfocused idealist and move towards 
a more directed and more consistent way of trying to change and improve your universe. Um, how does that, and I'm directing this largely at Ali, but also thinking about me and Alana, like how does that um, match up with our sort of own experiences of growing into having a cause or an approach? Yeah, I definitely think there's there's a lot of overlap and a lot of uh, uh, similarity that that I see in terms of the way that I've approached trying to be effective at advancing different causes or focusing on different areas and looking at all the all the different pieces of sort of what goes into connecting society and and particularly through the you know the political lens of the way that we interact to make decisions about laws and, and, and rules and things like that. And so, um, you know, because Star Trek is so utopian and even though Deep Space Nine is among the least utopian of the series, uh, it's still kind of this, you know, the, the things they're trying to fix are a little bit different. You know, they're not necessarily trying to fix the same problems or, you know, they're fixing things that are metaphors or, or, you know, of, of, you know, uh, comparable to current problems, but, uh, or literally the same problems in the case of like past tense where the, you know, the same thing was being in the news when they were, when they were shooting that, when they were shooting that, that episode and also, you know, featured Bashir heavily. And it's that, that was, I think, sort of a key sequence for him evolving, uh, and, and recognizing how all the, you know, at other points in the series, he talks about like, oh, I'm not that much of a historian, or I don't know that much about what happened and him being like, oh, right now, I do need to care about these things and how it all fits together and how things in the past were one way and how we can use that to inform making things better now. Um, you know, they're still on Star Trek ends up being some of the, uh, you know, solving the problem of the week. A lot of what Bashir is doing is just solving the medical problem of the week, uh, even if it's done in a good and dramatic and interesting way it still just kind of devolves back to the 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 procedural uh, you know elements of it a little bit um but i do think that um you know i do see those parallels in terms of real life activism and and his character in particular being sort of among the most that that reflect those you know one thing you just made me think of is that you know, for all of his work sort of in advocacy and essentially, you know, policy and science and, and empathy, he doesn't really do any organizing until he's in the past with with, um, with Cisco and sort of follows his lead in having it. It's not just I'm going to do this to help you. It's like I'm going to help mobilize other people and we will take collective action, which, of course, is the only thing that actually works in the real world. Um, you know, it's like even when he mentions the labor union in um, the, you know, the Quarks and the Quark, everybody joins the union in Quarks episode as we covered in our second episode of the podcast. Um, you know, he has the idea of, well, this is how things should be done, but he doesn't actually like in a significant way, he's not part of organizing it, which is okay. He doesn't like literally work there. Um, you want, you know, the workers to be the leadership in an organizing drive, not like a random outside person. 
But um, his job is to that, find or steal cures to diseases. So, you know, exactly, exactly. Um, but I but I think it's interesting that it's through that it's through looking at Cisco that he actually does start to do actual organizing for the first time in the show. If my chronology is right on this. Yeah, I think that past tense might really be a turning point for him in that respect. He has and this is a misquote, but he says something like they had everything they needed to solve the problem, but nobody quite cared enough. And I think that that realization um, seems to have um, sort of flipped a switch for him a little bit in terms of his behavior going forward in terms of not just saving one person, but in terms of trying, you know, he literally prevents a genocide twice. So, um, thinking more in those terms of like, how big can he go? At, at least a couple times, depending on some, maybe some of the other non-medical genocides he, he, he stopped. What are you thinking of beyond the, beyond the two, the, the two that I think are obvious? Oh, well, he, he did have the role in, um, in, uh, Purgatory Shadow and in Inferno's Light with when they, you know, finally exposed the changeling. Oh, right. Okay. That makes sense. I think there's, I think there may be a, another episode or two like that where he has some, you know, role in some sort of thing of that nature. Yeah. How did you feel when it was revealed that he had been the changeling? Like that was the person who they'd replaced? I thought, I thought that was good. I thought that, you know, uh, they didn't, I felt like they balanced it where, you know, there was a point, uh, you know, in, um, you know, in Homefront and in uh, Paradise Lost where they're talking about, you know, there's changelings everywhere. And for a while you're like, oh my goodness, everybody's going to be a changeling. And, you know, some Ron, Ron Moore dealt with something similar on uh, Battlestar. But, uh, you know, I, I think they settled it down. They're like, okay, we can have people be changelings a little bit and we can use it judiciously. And I think generally they did. And I think that was a good case where they were able to, you know, work it into the plot. And then, and, you know, even Sadig is like, I didn't know I was a changeling those last three episodes. I didn't act them like I was a, a changeling the last three episodes, but I guess I was. Um, same thing with the genetically engineered, where, which I think they, you know, they maybe tied in a little bit better, but that was, you know, a, a longer longer arc as opposed to the changeling story which is a bit shorter but uh yeah no i thought that was i was gonna say yeah what did you think about the decision because yeah it definitely was like a case of retrofitting um but it was retrofitting that i I felt like kind of explained him pretty well like the decision to have him have to have his parents had genetically engineered him i mean i do i do think it was you know, and I think it was also, you know, reading some of the the producers and writers talking about how, you know, it's, you know, genetic engineering is one of those things that with the exception of, of Khan and the eugenics wars, which, you know, gets a big, you know, attention in certain ways, like for the most part, they don't deal with it. And even though it's sci-fi and it's, that's like a big sci-fi thing, it just doesn't come up directly very much in the plots. So I do think that was a, you know, a good way to work that in. Like, why couldn't there be a character that was genetically, you know, enhanced and that would clearly be a thing that would happen? Um, you know, uh, Lower Decks has a cyborg character, so why not? Um, so they, uh, uh, so I do think that that was a, a, a way to sort of tie that up and explain some of the things about why he was doing things and the way that they tried to explain his backstory or not explain it in the previous seasons. Um, and it came at a good time where they could then sort of use it for the, the springboarding for the remaining couple seasons without it being too, uh, too over overdone. 
you know, they didn't, they could refer to it and they could have a passing line here and there, but then it didn't have to be, you know, an emphasis all the time. It's amazing how several times through sort of Bashir's evolution that his backstory kind of retroactively changes everything that came before it. And yet it makes perfect sense. And that almost never happens. So. Yeah. And some of that, I think, as we were talking earlier, comes back to just that he was such a blank slate to begin with that they just didn't write that much. And they, they, a lot of it was very vague anyways. And so you could, you had a lot of choices where you're going to tie that up, but, uh, but yeah, they still, um, they still definitely made it work. I mean, what do you think that they had as him at the core in the beginning? Where they, they're like, okay, we need a doctor. We want him to be the opposite of the other doctors. There needs to be like an attractive young man who's going to go do attractive young man things. Like, what was the, like, which in and of itself, I was like, oh, thank God. You have someone who isn't like white bread in that role, which is a nice acknowledgement, I thought. But like, what, like, what, what was, like, what, do, was there anything else that was part of the original that wasn't just backfill? As I understand it, he was the, the least fleshed out, the least explained character from the beginning from all the development of the show, and that everything they came up with was kind of after. And, and, and I do think that, you know, the Britishness, like the fact that he, you know, Siddig in particular is like very British in a particular way, um, that like that wrote most of much more of the character than anything else that they came up with, you know, or that they had prior to the show starting. And then, you know, as time went on, you know, then they were able to to write based on things that had happened. But no, I, I do think it was sort of like, yeah, he was just sort of this arc. It's like, he's a doctor check. He's young and eager check. He's, uh, you know, got all these other features, but like, it was very sort of simple. And then just like, we're going to turn him loose and we'll, we'll see what happens. And then they were able to make it work. And that's also why I think he has the most evolution because he had the least written. I mean, in, in some ways, in some ways, Quark changes more, but I think overall Bashir has certainly the most like total fleshing out and development and change of all the characters um, just because, you know, kind of to my point earlier, there's like so many of them that were just sort of pretty, pretty, not necessarily grizzled, but like pretty set in characters, um, that change and grow and especially being a serialized show growing much more than they would on like next gen or original series. Um, but still, um, you know, they're not changing, you know, they're the, you, you, the, the, the gap isn't nearly as big. One thing that I just really am been stuck on this, with this rewatch was the the sight and sound of a person with a British accent, but who's not white, saying, I'm excited to practice frontier medicine, in quotes. And that just sort of sets off these alarm bells in my head that's like, okay, like British person is like, oh, I'm going to save all you like savages out there where you don't know how medicine works. But then it's like not coming from a white person. It's just very, in, but it's very much like this is part of the Federation and how the Federation, someone who's like brand new to Starfleet might be like looking at other societies and the way they live. But I felt like it's supposed to be cringe, you know, and I, I at least, and I felt like it was cringe and I thought that was interesting. Yeah. It's, it's intentionally very uncomfortable, but, and it also sort of draws attention to how um, like Cisco in the first few episodes is behaving in very imperialist ways in some respects and, um, and how, by Bashir, whose social filters are not perhaps as well calibrated as one would sometimes, which sometimes is able to sort of say the quiet part out, out loud in a way that allows the show to explore things. Um, and I think that's a really good example. And that's something that even as they figured out 
who the character was a little more, they did give, give him those moments of like useful social awkwardness. And I think he lost some of that colonialism and that attitude by the end of the show as part of his arc too. Um, which kind of goes into, especially talking about that social awkwardness, one of the things that Alana and I were chatting about before was the fact that Bashir is a very polarizing character, that we had one friend who watched the show for the first time fairly recently and was like, oh my God, this guy, why is this guy even on the show? And then um, at the same time, He's been embraced by a lot of, especially a lot of autistic viewers and a lot of transgender viewers as sort of, he's one of ours. We can, without, you know, changing anything in canon, perceive this character as being one of us. And what do you two think about him? As I referred to him in our notes as the headcanon magnet, that he seems to um, sort of invite a lot of people to <clears throat> to embrace him as theirs, but at the same time, there are other people who find him incredibly off-putting and can't identify with him at all. I do think some of uh, you know some of it was that he's deliberately off-putting, right? It's, it's similar to with you know Quark and the misogynistic comments and things like that. You know, it's it's deliberately meant to be you know the character is behaving badly, and then the other characters around are typically going to react you know in, in in ways acknowledging that in some way. Well, yeah, I mean, this, what's interesting to me is the people who I know who had the most negative reaction to him are both cisgender, heterosexual men who are very feminist. And I think for them, like, they see him and all they can see is, like, the way he's just gross when he's sitting on women early in the series. And that to them is, like, very much like, well, there but for the grace of God. I I don't want to be that person. I've made sure that I'm not that person. And then looking at him go off being that person. And just, whereas, like, for other folks, I think sometimes there's enough other things happening around him. And we also sort of are just like, well, yeah, the the, the heartthrob character is going to be sexist. It's a 90s show that, like, <laughs> we're just like, okay. Um, whereas I think, like, it's close enough to them that they, that they object to it more strongly in that way. And I think in terms of the other kinds of hand- headcanons that people are drawn to, I mean... You know, the people making the autism connection is was, you know, new new newer to me, but I I see that. Like I see where people are coming from on that shore. And it's not one of my neuro it's not one of my neurotypicalities. Um I, I'm certainly not gonna say no to that. Um but also by the same token though, we were sort of like, oh, he's bi. And so that was nice. Even if you know, even if the show was of mixed opinions as to that, um, and was like constantly fighting itself on that. Uh, that was also going to, by necessity, you know, make this a character that, like, spoke to me in a different way than it might speak to straight people. Yeah, yeah. it also, you know, some of his, you know, some of his grossness also gets tied into him being a doctor. And and as I was, you know, as as I was thinking about earlier, the, the, um, the fact that, you know, they have to have a doctor and the doctor's a main character. And so if the doctor has romances, you know, in the other series, the romances were all one-offs anyways. Uh, but for for various reasons, they, with the exception of, of of Lita, who you know approaches him initially, at least uh, you know the other the other most of the other characters he meets are related to his who he he, he dates in some capacity are related to him being a doctor at least partially. Um, you know, if he wasn't a doctor, it wouldn't be a problem. And the fact that they you know have to have a doctor means that the doctor, and then you know on top of that that 
character is also the young, occasionally, you know, gross character. Um, I think it sort of like doubles up in a way that, especially if you're watching it now, if you were watching it at the time and you had the context of like, well, like you said, this is how these characters were at that time. It wasn't as gross. It's still gross, but like it was more in the context of like, right, we know it's gross and, and we're acknowledging that he's going to grow up eventually, we hope. Um, but some of it, I still think it's tied to like, if he just, if, if they were a little less lazy writing his romantic interests to be, you know, you know, it wasn't until the end, basically, where they gave him a romantic interest. I mean, I guess Jedzia, if she was interested, but like a romantic interest where there wasn't some medical connection or something um, who uh, uh, some some just, you know, one off where they they tie it into the story of the week. Um, I, I do think they could have they could have found a way to make that a little bit better. But he also, you know, then there's also the, the, the classic Star Trek trope of the character that you know is the least lucky uh with the with you know romantic encounters and uh you know on to a certain degree he's the one on this show so that sort of adds the extra layer it's just it just kind of layers on in a weird way i think where particularly watching it now all the, so the sort of the various layers sort of stack up in a way where i can see where people would be like do they really need to do that and they didn't really need to do it but it was the 90s yeah and i think what you're pointing to which is maybe a really useful way to sort of bring this together is that maybe the problem isn't with Bashir and women per se, but with the fact that in it, that this show just sort of launched itself into being very arc based very quickly without even really realizing what it was doing. Um, and the one-off romance episodes in general just do, sort of don't fly. Like if we make lists of our worst episodes, like, the Cisco one-off romance episodes are terrible. There's at least one really terrible, like, Dax one-off romance episode. So, like, unless there's some kind of, like, ongoing personal connection, like, a lot of those one-off romance episodes just don't fit the show and seem to have sort of this retro idea of how romance even works that just maybe just felt out of date even by then because of the way that TV was changing. One of the other parts of the, the headcanon question and something that I think might resonate with all three of us is him as also this sort of like um, burned out gifted kid where by the time he's at the end of Starfleet Medical, he's almost like self-sabotaging so that he can't achieve too much. I mean, but that's also so he doesn't get caught, right? Well, when they, you know, when they wrote most of that, that the backstory and sprinkled it through the first few seasons, you know, that was before they had anything about the genetic engineering. So there's nothing for him to hide. So it was like, why are you doing this? You know, what's what's your reasoning? And and yeah, I think some of it is sort of a was even still whether he was genetically engineered or not, that he had this, uh, you know, sort of overachieving mentality and. You know, but, uh, you know, they, they, cause they kind of balanced it, right? Like where some of the things where he talks about is playing tennis, where he, there's a couple times where he talks about, you know, I was going to be a great tennis player. And then I just realized like I wasn't quite good enough. So I decided to do something else. Uh, and that, that also kind of evolved and changed a little bit, but there's clearly a, you know, understanding that, you know, sometimes you're going to reach certain, you know, ceilings of ability or, or just your situation where, you know, you, you're going to find different paths depending on, you know, how good you are at tennis or not, or how good you are at medicine or not. And that, uh, you know, they also, they, they really wanted to end, 
I, I do think a lot of that backstory was tied to trying to emphasize him, you know, having chosen being there, that it wasn't just like he got this assignment, that was what he got. It was, you know, for whatever 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 they tried to say about uh, him being able to get it or not, that they really wanted to, to emphasize that he, uh, you know, that, that, that that was something that was important to him, this this particular assignment on Deep Space Nine, on, on the frontier, for whatever it was. Um, and and they, they've sort of played that, like you said, in different ways early on. It was sort of a bit imperialistic, but then later on they kind of tried to evolve it more into a, like, you know, it's just my dream job because I can sit and do all this research and I can get nominated for these fancy awards and I can save all these people. And if I'm, uh, you know, the 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 chief medical officer of the Lexington or whatever the ship was, then he, uh, you know, then you don't get to do that cool stuff. You might be on some fancy ship, but you have lots of boring flying around and waiting to go to places. Yeah, he does. He eventually you know, meets back up with the the woman who was the valedictorian who got that, like, plum assignment. And it turns out that, like, he comes away from that interaction, first of all, like, she didn't remember him. And second of all... I loved that. And second of all, um, he comes away from that interaction like, oh, I chose the right job all along. Like, mm-hmm. this was the right job for me anyway. I always thought it was. A, yeah, I always thought it was I a little. That. I always thought. I, I mean, the joke about why she thought he looked like somebody else was funny, but I always thought it was a little implausible that the top two Starfleet medical students literally wouldn't know what each other looked like. That just seemed a little bit un, un, unlikely to me. But I did right. like the joke. Yeah, like I liked. I liked what it said, even if it was pretty improbable. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, and we keep kind of coming back to how like he likes, first of all, the opportunity to have sort of, you know, big world changing glory, but also that he we keep coming back to like he is so much of just a researcher and like at the end of the wire after he's actually like saved Garrick's life, he's still doing more research after he cures the blight at the end of the quickening he's still doing more research like he's never really done um and that's just sort of a fascinating character quirk i think i some of that i also think ties into like we were saying about these different sort of archetypal star trek roles and the way that the series work um you know original series and next gen in particular were all about going places and boldly going places and and adventuring and whereas deep space nine was all about staying and building and i think some of that was that that was filtered through to him in that way that it's like you're not just solving the medical problem of the week you're going to actually you know stick around maybe it's because they're on the other side of the wormhole or maybe it's because they're on bajor and you're solving some i think i forget when they give when they nominate him for that fancy award that only you know the really old doctors get nominated for i think it's for something bajoran but you know whatever whatever particular Mm -hmm. disease it was that he was helping to research or save or 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 fix um uh, that it was because he was sticking around he didn't just like fly in one day and and solve the problem then fly away and never see them again which on the other series is how it would have would have occurred just because that's how those series are structured right no i think that's very cool yeah um, and how does that, you mentioned at the beginning, like as much as we think of him as like, he's a really good doctor in all of the ways that we can think of, except maybe for hitting on his patients, um, <laughs> that 
at the same time, what he really wants to be is a spy. And how does that kind of fit in? Sorry, I think I think early on, uh, some of it is just sort of the cool factor. It's it's with you know the very early Garrick episodes. It's not even about Bashir being interested in spying on its own. It's there's a spy here, and I you know get to be firsthand you know interacting with him, and he comes up and hits on me, and then I can I can you know use that to learn more about spying. Um, so I think it's sort of uh, at the beginning it was sort of just like awakening all that latent uh, spy interest, and uh, and how it uh, then you know sort of more evolves later on into a broader uh, you know actually becoming a spy, uh, but. Yeah, I think that was a very, uh, er, you know, early on it was just sort of something that was cool to him and then he, you know, just thought it was fun and then it became real and then he's doing all sorts of crazy stuff by season seven. I mean, to me, there's two things going on. One is, you know, they're like, we're, we're flailing to give him a personality. He's British. Why not spy James Bond stuff as an interest, even though he hasn't shown any knowledge or interest in 20th century history in the slightest until this point. That And then it's like, oh, this gives us a justification for why he is so intrigued with Garrick other than he's bi. Like, this is how this is how you create your heterosexual headcanon for Bashir, is that he's into spy stuff. It's clearly written into the show later. So that's my bitter queen-like take on why he's into spy stuff. But my less bitter take is, look, like, you know, I'm like a leftist and I'm feminist and I listen to just the most fucking, like, uh, problematic heavy metal music from the 80s and the most problematic glam rock from the 70s. And it doesn't mean that I actually want to, you know, like, be a terrible rapey dude uh, this is I, I enjoy listening to this music and it emotes something to me and like I enjoy singing about skulls in a talent contest, but I'm not actually a serial killer. So there's a bit of it which is like, well, yeah, he's into spy stuff, but that doesn't mean he actually wants to be a spy. Like I'm into metal, but I don't actually want to be a demon beheading people and raping women, you know? Um, but there is still part of me that's like, you did this to explain why he hangs out with Garrick, didn't you? I mean, I think that's part of it. I do. I do think some of it, could, though, could be. You know, they don't. They don't say it explicitly, so you sort of have to, you know, decide on your own. But if, if, um, you know, you could certainly read that. You know, like we're talking about with past tense, where he sort of starts out not being big on history, but then once he's in history, he starts to maybe get a little bit more interested in it. And the same thing with the spy thing, where I don't. I don't think we have to presume that from the beginning of the series, he was secretly into James Bond. I think he could have become interested in James Bond by season four and wanting to do a Holosuite program centered around James Bond or James Bond-like theme um, because of all the things that happened in the previous seasons, including like caring more about history and caring more. And sometimes that caring about history leads you to things, you know, the same way that ironically, you know, I wasn't into uh, jazz standards uh, uh, and and those sorts of songs until Jimmy Darren and Deep Space Nine. And now, you know, the way you look tonight huh. is, uh, you know, in my typical bedtime lullaby repertoire for my kids. So, you know, that's how these things evolve too. And I think you, I think you could see that with, with Bashir where, um, like he, he didn't get into, he didn't, he, you know, he got into, uh, James Bond essentially because Garrick is a spy and because he started caring more about history. 
Yeah. He starts really getting into just those Holosuite programs to the point where by like the end of the series, they're making jokes about another one of Julian's ridiculous Holosuite programs. And they're and they're almost all historical and they're almost all either they're almost like nostalgic for like futility where there's a joke, too, where it's like all of these battles where everyone dies at the end Um, that like, oh, I have feelings about that. Yeah, that like he develops this new hobby and it's fun for him. And that like futility is kind of an escape for him in a weird way. Yeah, I do think some of that ties it. Like he starts, he starts out a certain way with some of the spy stuff, and then some of it ties into him having his his bonding time with Miles, and then they sort of mm-hmm. do. I think I think Miles sort of brings that into where it's the, uh, you know, it's the two of them engaging in this this feudal feudal fight together more so, more so than individually. Yes, I absolutely think that them starting to play these these war games there where they are lose where their their side loses is like so O'Brien like it's just stems so much from you know this well for one thing like a culture that's based around having to tell stories of like loss and romanticizing it and Bashir you know is there to go and hang out with this his older friend who he respects so much and like wants to think he's cool and um I I I think that I feel like those are they feel like those are O'Brien's choices and Bashir is just like sure because, and that's actually one of the things one of our listeners wanted to make sure we talked about, which was his friendship with O'Brien. Um, I really like, I always like the fact that he goes on the show. He's like, I want to be friends with this person. They're really interesting. And the person in question is like, oh my God, you're so irritating. And eventually comes around and is like, no, I actually do appreciate you. And I, I need this male friendship in my life because it's just me and my wife in our terrible, terrible, terrible marriage. But um I, I I appreciate like the way that Bashir is like, I think you're interesting. I want to be your friend and I'm going to make this like a thing that happens. And isn't like, he doesn't, he's like, he, he won't, he won't just give up on, on it. I don't know. He also grows into somebody that Miles can be friends with. And I think Miles also develops into maybe a more idealistic or bright, broad-minded person as a result of his friendship with Bashir. Yeah. I think, I think early on, especially Bashir, you know, they, there are definitely several points where it's him trying to be too eagerly friends with all the main characters or most of the main characters at any rate, or sometimes mm-hmm. he's, you know, awkwardly hitting on them or, or not. Um, but even I think to a certain degree with Cisco, there's somewhere he's, you know, trying to be, you know, eager and not necessarily friends with Cisco, but trying to be like super eager and, and, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, forthright in that way of trying to make that connection in a way that the other characters aren't necessarily portrayed as doing. I, I, I just a little more on O'Brien. I do think that I, I think that was, you know, to what I was saying about them, sort of some of them were jokes, but it was a little bit of the writers just sort of trying different things. And it's like, who's gonna, who's gonna be friends with who and who's gonna connect with who, even if it isn't serialized yet in the early seasons. Um, but once they really found that and they latched onto it in a way that was, you know, maybe, maybe with the exception of like Jordy and data, there, there aren't too many other like, but good, like, but just buddies of like two equals, not like, 
different levels of, of power and, you know, Kirk and Spock or other, other relationships that are close, but are like represent some, some different dynamic, just the two sort of buddies. Um, I think they, you know, they realize they hit something and even though they're different and, and, and some of it is just playing on that natural, you know, their, their Britishness and their Irishness and them, how they sort of play off each other through that. Um, I do think that that was really something they latched onto early and, and, and it's good that they were able to carry through and, and, and go through the ups and downs and have them, you know, bicker and fight and have things get, you know, uh, competitive when they're playing squash for some reason and, and, and darts eventually, um, but also get into the absurd when they're doing these hollow suite programs. I think that was really, uh, a good, a good balance for those characters and for the show to have that, that dynamic of these, these uh you know just just sort of the buddies on the show which star trek doesn't always have in that kind of that kind of way yeah i think the newer series the like current ones do a much better job of building those relationships but i also think the tv in general is better at knowing how to sort of arc out a relationship between two characters and it's almost yeah like they try like early on there was a lot of like pairing two characters together to see what happened. Um, and like, and I think that that sort of gets, um, some of those get thrown away and some of them for external reasons, like you can only go so far with the relationship between Bashir and Kira when the two actors are dating off screen. Um, <laughs> right. uh, you can throw in a few, you can throw in a few jokes, but you're not, you're not going to get very far in them like developing a, a friendship of any sort. Right. It just gets awkward. Um, but like they really they really nailed it with um, Bashir and O'Brien and with having that relationship be really key emotionally and key to their development without having it get weird or without having it feel forced. You know, I was just thinking because there's a few there's a few characters in the show who you just you just don't see interact ever. Like, I don't feel like we ever have a sense of like Odo and Bashir and like what that. There's like, is there even an Odo and Bashir episode other than Bashir trying to save him? And it's not like a, it's not like a, any kind of a friendship sort of thing. Yeah. Sadly, there's no relationship there. Yeah. I mean, they do, there was definitely the the setup for jokes. There's multiple joke setups and far, as far as things relating to either when he isn't a changeling for a, for a hot minute or when, when there's some of the other things on the show where he's, you know, basically anytime something's wrong with Odo and Bashir has to be like, well, I can't figure it out or I sort of can figure it out, but can't do anything because you're a changeling. Um, and so there's definitely that level of that connection, but uh, uh, not. And and I, I do think that that was one one of those relationships where yeah, they basically just played it for jokes. Whether it was jokes about um, you know random interactions here and there, it was it was rarely anything developed. Yeah, they just seem to be like you know two people who are in the same friend group, so they're always at the same parties, and like they get along <laughs> fine, but like there's no like relationship there. Which is interesting because, I mean, cops and spies do different things, but they sit in my mind in the same sort of area as like, you know, militarizing the law and like, you know, uh, exerting will over other people and violence, um, which I guess is not really how the show regards Azoto per se, but it's, it's in there, which I guess brings me to the thing for... I, I I really recommend listeners watch um, the 
the what's it Frank what's the documentary I forget like the blah blah left behind what we left behind thank you the what we left behind documentary that's a deep six nine documentary is excellent and one of the things that they mention in passing as they try to break story for um, what another season of DS9 would have looked like is one of the ideas that somebody throws out there is, oh, what if Bashir, because they were going to have it take place, you know, in the modern, like not in the modern time period, but like, you know, 20 years later or whatever, there was like, what, what is Bashir, what is Bashir going to be doing 20 years from now? And someone said, oh, what if he's, what if he's running section 31? And everybody's like, oh, that's interesting. And here's the thing. That is interesting, but that would be an utter tragedy to the point where thinking about it gets me depressed. And I'm just like, okay, guys, like that is definitely an interesting storyline, but please tell me that you understand why that would be tragic, because that would be him abandoning all of his morals to go and do something completely immoral. Yeah, and most of the tie-in novels that I have read... um, tend to just have him still be on the station for years later, which is also mm-hmm. depressing to me. It's like, mm. he should move on. I have my own sort of wacky theories that I will not torture anybody with on air. But yeah, like most of the futures that are in any way officially sanctioned just seem sort of sad for him. And I guess that's okay. Like you're allowed to, someone is allowed to have a sad story arc in the end in Star Trek. I just hope that they realize why that would be tragic. I mean, he could, he could just And I move, wasn't he, entirely he, sure that they got that. <laughs> he, could, he could just move around um, being a doctor and a scientist and eventually when he's really old, win that award for doctors that are really old um, and then just be this, you know, super renowned, amazing doctor. I think that's okay. I don't think he needs to necessarily have, you know, the spy thing I think is a good good diversion i think it brought a lot especially when the show was going through all the political intrigue and you know basically they you know they do the the uh they do it with cisco in um uh pale moonlight and then they do the like like Mm -hmm. we talked about the similar thing with with bashir at the end where it's sort of like the black ops like really really pushing the boundaries um but, you know, I don't think that, like, you, you know, I, I agree that I don't think he needs to c- carry that to the extreme of running Section 31 or being an operative. You know, maybe maybe they could do some some tie-in in one of these future-situated series like Picard, but uh, I'd be fine if he just kept being a doctor. I mean, I think, I think God, I, like that. I mean, yeah. you know, like Janeway just yeah. becomes an admiral, right? I mean, it's not like, I think she's maybe got some role in one of these new series, but a lot of them, they just kind of go on to be, you know, you become a captain or an admiral or you get to have a big fancy, you know, you can kind of keep doing what you're doing until you retire, until you're too old and you retire. And he loves discovering things. He loves being a scientist and that reflects his values and like being anti-democracy and like killing people is just not... Yeah, I, the more I think about it, the more I'm really into this parallel of like, I am really into some violent, sexist music, and I'm not violent or sexist. And Bashir is really into some spy shit, but he doesn't actually want to be a spy. But his interest in spy shit is part of why he's like, I mean, he literally shows up at the space station. And his first thing is, I hear you're a spy. We should definitely talk about that. It's an amazing introduction to the character. Like, I, I, I understand why some people didn't like the character immediately. But to me, the fact that there is a character who the first thing they do on their new assignment is say, so I hear you're a spy. I mean, you gotta love that. 
Yeah, and yeah. I feel like he's like that. With, like, sort of his introduction to Dax is like, so, I hear you're both hot and 300 years old. Like, he seems <laughs> to just, that sort of seems to be why he bothers with people. So. But, they, but they just they just seem to give him all the all the foreshadowing jokes, like all the jokes that I mentioned about um, about things that happen when he's talking about unli- unlikely things that are going to happen uh, in the in the future of the war. Um, you know, he's also there's that joke at the beginning where, uh, you know, uh, Garrick says, you know, maybe I'm an outcast spy. And Bashir says, how could you be both? And well, you know, he is. That's the joke. It's <laughs> um, amazing. So um, it's, it's similar. Actually, with, I want to. I want to hear about your thoughts about his interactions with the other genetically engineered uh, characters in this show, the, those folks. Yeah, I, I do think that was a good, uh, you know, once they sort of decided to expand on the genetically engineered and, and they, they clearly didn't work it all the way through. I think they could have, they could have been maybe a little more thorough about the way they kind of thought about those, those characters and the genetically, you know, they, they, they played him for jokes a little too much. I think in a way that they could have been a little bit more, um, just more thoughtful about the way they, they constructed the characters. But overall, I think the concept that, uh, there are these other genetically engineered, but, you know, uh, people that have behavioral issues, um, that he's then able to relate to and connect with, and they are able to bring uh, bring that into the storyline. I do think that was a very a very good choice and a very interesting uh, very very interesting opportunity to expand on that instead of just sort of making it you know like I said like a one off like he's genetically engineered and then we're going to crack jokes about it. But that's pretty hmm. much it. So they were able to they were able to sort of use it in a way that that I thought was was good to advance the story. And I, I love the fact that he's like, no, it's not okay to just warehouse them away. Like, let's see what they could do, you know. And like, even if it turns out that they are not able to just live on their own, they should at least we should find out. Let's see. Yeah, um, and, and some of it is just the overall. I don't know if laziness is the right word, but you know, general inability for Star Trek writers and shows to try to look at like what is really happening to sort of regular folks that aren't in Starfleet that aren't like the, mm. like you sort of see them as extras and you see them and how they connect to the main characters but you don't really get an idea for like what well why is it that these characters like clearly have behavior issues but like why do they necessarily have to be like in an institute <laughs> Like, like, why? Yep. Like, what? What is it about their situation? Like, okay, maybe Faith Saley in the first one, like she's catatonic. Okay, I get it. Like that's, but the rest of them, like, just because they have problems behaviorally, like, why in the twenty fourth century does that mean they essentially have to be institutionalized? That seems very odd. That there wouldn't be some sort of, like, yeah, they're genetically engineered, and maybe they can't be in Starfleet or whatever. But why can't they just live in houses on planets and have support services that they need? Like, why, why is that so complicated? But it's, it's a lot of that's just because they don't really get into that level of detail on these shows and they never do. It's always centered around the main characters. And even when they're not super heroic, even when they're less heroic or flawed or more, more shaded, like they are in deep space nine, you know, they're still not like regular folks, right? They're still these, you know, superstars of, of whatever they're doing. And so, you're not going to get you even even the everyman miles is like the best everyman there ever was he's not just <laughs> he's not just you know an everyman everyman he's not you know carrying the mail or 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 something like that so um i do, i do think that that's you know a lot of it comes back to just the way that star trek in general doesn't always 
flesh out all of those things in a way that lets us sort of analyze them more deeply because, well, we don't, we don't really know why you know, they, they, they either just have to take shortcuts for, for writing and story reasons, or they just play it for jokes, which is sometimes fine. But I think there's like also a sort of interesting legalization parallel here where like the, they've, you, you've made people be illegal is just terrifying and disgusting like you essentially essentially are punishing people for things that their parents did for one thing and like there's just n- no care for individual bodily autonomy happening in the slightest and um just really like like we have to make everybody be quote unquote normal and um you know obviously I don't want to have to deal with the wrath of Khan you know but like that's such an edge case too but it's like I, I, th- I feel like there's something in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they could have, they, they, they could have, for example, instead of having it be these characters that are very, you know, unusual and act in these unusual ways, you know, they, they could have just as easily said, um, you know, there are these genetically engineered people that have been, you know, they've been caught or whatever. So we know they're genetically engineered and they can't be in Starfleet and they can't do whatever other rules, but it, it is, they don't really say it, but the implication is like, even if even had Bashir not cut his deal to stay in Starfleet, uh, and I guess one of the original story ideas was that they were gonna they were gonna blackmail Picardo into keeping it a secret, so he would be like they would know that he was uh, genetically engineered, but it wouldn't be public. But you know, hmm. it's never suggested that it's like okay, if you can't be in Starfleet, then you go live in the Institute because you're genetically engineered, right? It's it's suggested that like it's because those particular genetically engineered people had these extreme behavioral problems that makes them unable to function in society or however they phrase it, which, you know, whatever. But wouldn't there be other genetically engineered people who aren't in Starfleet and are, like, barred from Starfleet but don't have behavioral issues that he could interact with that are also really smart and can do clever things? Right, so they could have written it a little bit differently there. Like, they didn't have to take it to the extreme of, like, the genetically engineered people that Bashir is going to meet are wacky. It can be something that's... They could have done it in in a more balanced way, but... Well, the implication, I think, is that people like Bashir who pass, and I think that passing really is one of the apt metaphors here, is Mm -hmm. that the reason that he's able to find this group of misfits is because they're the ones that don't pass. They're the ones who presumably were having major um, behavioral and neurological issues. And somebody went and said, well, let's figure out what's wrong with them. and, And then the um the genetic enhancement um came out uh whereas you would think that that anybody who um is living their lives has been able to keep it a secret from most of the people they interact with um as bashir has like it's a it's a um so it's sort of self-selecting but at the same time you know don't get me started about the really awful depiction of neurodiversity and mental health in those uh-huh. in that group of characters and how um, it really is offensive in a lot of ways, um, both in terms of like, so, you know, broken genetic enhancement re- results, results in everybody being kind of like, you know, quirk, quirkly, quirky behavior diversity, like weirdos um rather and none of them have like notable um physical differences it's all like they're just sort of like 
they lack social skills in various amusing ways. But yeah, like my assumption and my sort of way of rationalizing it maybe was like anybody who anybody for whom the genetic enhancement was as successful as Bashir, like they're passing. They're out there just hoping they don't get caught. And if they're not in a job or in, in some position where they would be barred, like if there's no it's 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 they don't suggest that people with genetic enhancements are put in prison or are sent to institutes. They they do seem to make it pretty clear that, like you said, if you're if you're passing, you can't be in Starfleet, but you and maybe there's some other things you can't do that they don't enumerate, but that, you know, you can just be a regular citizen of the federation hanging out with genetic enhancements um and even if you were caught you know you wouldn't necessarily be sent to prison or an institute you just would you know then not be whatever those restrictions are that they don't always lay all the way out and one of the things that does get hinted at a couple of times but that they never say outright is that Bashir would not be permitted to have biological children Mm -hmm. like it's hinted at with a lot of sadness a couple times talking with O'Brien, but they never flat out say it. Yeah, that's real. And just the listeners, we will definitely be talking about the way the show addresses neuroatypical folks and folks with different abilities uh, in a later episode because it is a huge thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's just say there is something to be said for our man who uh, to, to, who has decided that he is going to lose at darts 30 to 40% of the time for the sake of passing and making his friend happy. And I think that's a very typical sort of like passing attitude um, is like, just sort of like, what do I have to do to not stand out? Yeah. And I do think, I do think that part of it, they sort at least on his end, you know, forgetting the other characters, I think at least as far as Bashir goes, I do think they calibrated that pretty well. Like it seemed to be sort of the right balance of, of him, you know, a plausibility in terms of given they just wrote this in that he's genetically enhanced, how it's going to fit back. Um, but that, you know, it, it, it makes sense that he could have, you know, all those pieces of, of finding ways to pass, you know, are, 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 are plausible. It's not, it's not too sci-fi. It's not too like, Oh, well, if he was, you know, he's not, he has super, it's not like he has like literal, literal superpowers where he's got, you know, He's not shape-shifting. He's not, like, shooting, except, mm-hmm. except when he gets replaced all those times. Um, but uh, <laughs> he's, uh, you know, he's not shooting laser beams out of his eyes or anything. He's He can he can pass. He can just not get all the questions right. He can throw the darts a little less well. Well, so I want to thank our guests again for, follow, for, for joining us for the show. Ali, like, where should folks uh, check up? I mean, I always tell people, I am on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Is there a social media platform in which you engage with the broader public? Uh, and it's fine if you don't. No, not really. You know, I, I I did, after listening to your first few episodes, think about that, that I'm not really on anything pu- very publicly. Um, That's okay. You can, you, can, you, can go- you can Google me and look up some of my media appearances and things like that that I've done in the past, <laughs> but... Well, people should be, should be sure that they're donating money to the amazing work that Normal in Illinois has done to like help people's health, to liberate people from prison, and just really, you know, put put a lot of us other states to shame for being completely fucking retrograde. Hey guys, this is Ilana jumping in here to say that in the time between when this episode was recorded and now when it's released to you. New York has actually finally passed marijuana reform, 
uh, including the legalization of pot for recreational use and expunging the records of many people in prison over marijuana. So what changed in that time? Uh, to quote my ally, Jawanza Williams, vocal New York's director of organizing, quote, make no mistake, this law is a result of years of tireless work by advocates and those who are impacted by prohibition and the drug war. Not an ounce of recognition is owed to the governor and his last-ditch effort to distract from calls for his resignation. Governor Cuomo repeatedly blocked this bill because he didn't want to invest revenue in black and brown communities, all the while black and brown New Yorkers were victimized by racist policing. We must give credit where credit is due, and that belongs solely to the grassroots advocates and legislatures who pushed to see the, the strongest version of this bill get across the finish line. So congratulations to New York organizers. And I, of course, will add congratulations to everyone who, like Ali, has been working on this at a policy level. Back to the episode. So maybe the question to ask instead, uh, now that... Um, that cannabis is so legal in Illinois that I sometimes forget that it's not legal elsewhere. So what's next for that movement and that, um, and that organization? Well, most of the, most of the attention at this point is on federal legislation because it appears there is a window for significant federal policy change on cannabis. They seem to be making a priority. There's a lot of optimism that something's going to get done, even if it's not you know, the best bill that there's going to be some real federal progress. And that's, that's been the biggest roadblock up until now that, that because of this interaction with federal and state law, you know, all these things that Illinois is doing is all still technically illegal under federal law, which is kind of ridiculous with, you know, the hundreds of, I mean, it's, it's billions nationally of tax revenue, but you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of tax revenue that's been collected at the state and local level um, in Illinois and that it's, uh, you know, that, that still the federal government is saying this is completely illegal and against the law. You know, that's, that's been the biggest roadblock, I think, to a lot of states, uh, certainly not all states. You know, New York may be, New York's kind of an odd exception where um, mm-hmm. they, they are in a position to have gotten it done or, or like New Jersey's in a similar kind of weird holding pattern. And some of that's... Some New of Jersey's that, ahead of us. Yeah, they are, but they're still a little bit, they're still a little bit stuck in the mud. I don't think they've quite gotten, gotten it over the line and totally, totally finalized their, uh, their uh, adult use program. But yeah, Illinois has definitely made big changes. And in, and in Illinois, it's just continuing to um, make sure that the rollout of the rollout of the end of prohibition, the rollback of prohibition, right, is done in a way that tries to promote and ensure equity and reflect the uh, dis- disproportionality, the racial disproportionality of the war on drugs, and particularly the war on cannabis, and that that uh, needs to be factored in as we undo and, and try to undo the damage of these laws of 40, well, more than 40 years, but particularly the last 40 years of these laws. So, you know, the state local level is always going to be on sort of more of those nuts and bolts, whatever state you're in, of trying to, trying to make that progress uh, more real. Uh, and more effective and more centered around consumers and patients and everybody else who consumes cannabis and is involved in the the whole business of cannabis. Um, but yeah, hopefully the federal the federal level will uh, see some change in short order here, and then and then from there it'll really be um, uh, you know a big a big time change as far as how we're going to move forward and interact and state to state and you know, things, things like that. It's, it's really going to continue to change the landscape even more than it's already changed in the last 20 years now of, of semi-legal to now fully legal cannabis. 
Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, thanks for continuing that fight and for, um, and for being so involved in, in that um, just amazing progression that we've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, I am findable on Twitter at Padashah, P-A-S underscore D-E-C-H-A-T. And I have a website, thefinersports.com, where I am currently writing about film until figure skating and gymnastics start to be safe things to do again. Um, and the other exciting news is Deep Space Dive now has our own email address where you can send us feedback or suggestions. It is Deep Space Dive Podcast at Gmail. Um, please send us email. We would really enjoy hearing from you. And Alana, mm-hmm. anything else before I, before I sign us out with wisdom from Odo? No, I, I swear we're going to have our own separate um, deep space dive RSS. I'm just so scared to no longer be easily findable to my graphic policy radio listeners. If you if you want to help give me the self confidence to move this over to its own its own thing, why don't you shoot us an email or tweet at me e l a n a underscore Brooklyn. You can do it. And as Odo says, stop using your job to pick up your to pick up your disabled.